Let's turn now to Romans, the book of Romans, chapter 4, and we'll read through this chapter. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed. God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to perform. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Let's turn now in our book of forms and prayers to Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 27, and we are going to be uh, focusing especially on question and answer 74. Should infants also be baptized? Yes. Infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant and people. And they no less than adults are promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who works faith. 
Therefore, by baptism, the sign of the covenant, they too should be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 4, verse 11, is an important passage uh, for our definition of the sacraments as derived from Holy Scripture. Uh, we read a few weeks ago uh, from answer 66 concerning the sacraments that they are visible, holy signs and seals. And they're given to us by God to signify and seal the promise of the gospel. Now, both of these terms, uh, both of these different parts of the definition of sacraments are found in verse 11 of Romans 4, where it says of Abraham, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised. Question and answer 74 of the Heidelberg Catechism gives the biblical reasons for the practice of, of infant baptism. And, uh, I suppose they could be, they could be summarized, uh, with two points. The first being that infants of believers are included in God's covenant. Uh, they are included, uh, with God's people and are also recipients of the gracious promises of the covenant of grace, just as infants were uh, in the Old Testament. Now, there is ample proof in the New Testament of the truth of this statement, the inclusion of children in the church and in the covenant of God. Remember Jesus' words uh, to those who were discouraging uh, those parents who were bringing their infant children to Jesus to be blessed by him. And he said, Suffer the little children to come unto me. Do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. He was making clear that they belong to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, when we come to the uh, New Testament epistles, we have uh, letters that are addressed to the saints. And uh, in the book of Ephesians, the, the saints are addressed uh, in general. But then there are specific directions given to specific saints, that is, to husbands and to wives and uh, masters and servants and and fathers and children. And the children are addressed as those among the saints who are called to uh, obey their parents in the Lord, in union with Jesus Christ. They're addressed as those who are called from their earliest years to live as Christians. Or think of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost when he proclaimed uh, the promise. And again, that, that promise in the context is the promise of the Holy Spirit, but uh, it is the promise really of God's saving grace, which was uh, proclaimed from the beginning of the, the gospel and elaborated in God's covenant with Abraham. And he makes clear that the promise is to you and to your children. And to all who are afar off, remember God's promise uh, to Abraham was that all the nations of the earth would be blessed in his seed. And that promise is extended to uh, believers who are Gentiles as well as their children. Because Gentile believers are also, by faith, children of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. 
So that, that's the, the, the first argument, that infants of believers are included in God's covenant people as were infants in the Old Testament. And then secondly, and this is a, just a, a necessary inference in correlation to that, uh, infants formerly received the Old Testament sign and seal of the covenant by their circumcision. And therefore, infants today are to receive the New Testament sign and seal of these promises by their baptism. And it's Colossians 2 that makes clear uh, the connection between baptism as the fulfillment of uh, the Old Testament rite of circumcision. So that's a, in brief, that's the basic argument of uh, the Heidelberg Catechism uh, for the baptism of infants. Now, going back to Romans chapter 4, notice that Romans chapter 4, 11 defines circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of faith. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had. Now, that's an important definition of circumcision. The reference here, of course, is to Abraham. And the reference is to uh, the circumcision that he himself received as a believer. But the definition of circumcision that is given here isn't limited uh, to what it meant to Abraham, but rather it's a definition of this sign of the covenant that was also given to others. It was given to those of his household. Every male, even every infant boy, was to be circumcised at the age of eight days old. And that would include Isaac, his son, who would be born to him and who would be circumcised, who himself then would bear on his own body the seal of the righteousness of faith. That's a definition of circumcision that's given to us by the Holy Spirit in this passage here. And this has importance for our understanding of the meaning of baptism, and it also has great importance for our understanding of the meaning of the baptism of infants. God commanded that infants receive the seal of the righteousness that is by faith. Now, we could stop and, and hear this, this theme only with respect to the old Testament administration of the covenant. We could hear it only with respect to Isaac. And even if we were to stop there, it is obviously of great importance because God commanded that Abram's infant son should receive the seal of the righteousness of faith. And we'll consider the significance of that. We'll consider the significance or the meaning of circumcision as a seal of righteousness. Now, again, in the context here, um, Abraham was circumcised after he believed. We say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. That that means that Abraham was justified by faith. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. In other words, Abraham believed God's promises and he was justified, accepted in God's sight as righteous, as one who believed those promises. And that took place 
before he was circumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. Now what that means, again, in this context, is that circumcision did not give Abraham acceptance with God. He was accepted uh, by God as just, as righteous in his sight before he received circumcision. Secondly, circumcision isn't some necessary preparation for that acceptance. He was righteous by faith alone, apart from circumcision. Circumcision did not serve as some uh, preparation for his justification. And then thirdly, circumcision didn't add to his acceptance with God. It didn't somehow complete it. It was a seal. And the purpose of a seal is to authenticate something. The purpose of a seal is to give confirmation and assurance of the truth of something. Right? You open a can of, uh, of, uh, pickles and, uh, you unscrew the lid and it makes this little pop. And, uh, that's not what makes the pickles good, but it gives some assurance that indeed it's been sealed. And, uh, you can trust them as, uh, edible and, uh, authentic in terms of their purpose of being edible and wholesome food. And so the seal of the righteousness of faith did not impart righteousness by faith, but it rather served to confirm the righteousness by faith that already existed in the case of Abraham who believed God. In other words, its value was not a matter of determining Abraham's standing with God. That was settled by his faith in God's promises but rather its value was the subjective comfort that it afforded him concerning the truth of his acceptance with God. It was added to the promise for Abraham's sake to help him in his assurance of salvation by God. Now this is crucial for the pure message of the gospel. You see, that's the application that Paul makes at the, in the other, the latter part of verse 11. He says, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. In other words, the gospel is being proclaimed, and it's being proclaimed to Gentiles. It's being proclaimed to non-Jewish people. How can they be accepted with God? Must they become circumcised and somehow enter a pathway towards uh, justification? No. Wherever the gospel is preached and whenever the message of forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ is received with humble hearts, Uncircumcised Gentiles are justified in the sight of God. They're declared righteous. Their standing with God is secure. It doesn't depend on circumcision. 
And you see, Paul is making the argument that that's the way it was with Abraham. And he's the father of all believers. That doesn't depend on their circumcision. As, it, as in the case of Abraham, it depended upon their faith in the gospel. Now, again, that has tremendous uh, importance. Um, that has tremendous importance also as uh, it applies to baptism. You see, with, with respect to this question of justification and acceptance with God, Circumcision avails nothing, nor uncircumcision. They contribute nothing towards justification. And the same applies to baptism. Baptism is not a condition for acceptance with God. It's not a condition for the faith that justifies. Baptism is not some preparation for the faith that justifies. Baptism is not some Necessity for the faith that justifies. Baptism, as in the case of circumcision, is a seal of the righteousness which is ours by faith alone. It serves to confirm the certainty, the reliability of God's promises of acceptance for Jesus' sake. So circumcision does not serve these saving purposes in terms of uh, preparation or necessity uh, or a condition for justification. We need to be clear on that. However, that's not the whole story, is it? Because circumcision had an important spiritual meaning. It was not simply a mark of uh, of Jewishness. You almost find in, invariably that uh, a, a Baptistic argument against infant baptism will will minimize uh, the significance of circumcision as taught in Scripture. Circumcision was not simply a mark of Jewish privilege or national or or ethnic identity or national and ethnic separation. Yes, circumcision did involve a kind of formal incorporation into uh, a place among the people of God. And yes, circumcision also was a sign of their separation from the world. But that was not intended to be simply some kind of uh, national ethnic badge. Rather, it was a sign of a relationship to God as belonging to his people. This past week I read the story of David and Goliath again and I was struck with, uh, with David's bold, uh, testimony as, uh, he heard about, uh, this giant challenging the armies of Israel. And, uh, and he said, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? Because he heard about the reward that Saul would give, uh, whoever um, took uh, took on this giant as if David says, why would anyone need a reward for this? What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, that's not some reflection of a kind of snarky, arrogant nationalism. 
That is an expression of zeal and faith in the special identity that God gave to Israel as His special people. A people that were so identified with God that it's God's honor that's at stake. And David was filled with confidence that as he took on this giant in the name of the Lord, the Lord would defeat this uncircumcised Philistine. The Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. It was a sign of Israel's relationship to God by grace. It was a sign that God had separated them from the world for Himself as a holy people to be consecrated to Him as a people who knew God as their God. It had profound spiritual significance. And that's why we have repeated uh, references to the spiritual meaning of circumcision that makes, makes clear that it was not simply some outward badge of Jewishness. It pointed to uh, what should be an inward grace, right? Again, sacraments have been defined as an outward sign of an inward grace. Well, what is the inward grace that circumcision points to and signifies? Well, we hear it in such exhortations as Deuteronomy 16, which say, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. A word given to Israel which basically said, don't be content with wearing the outward sign of your relationship to me without a heart for God. It's God's grace that deals with sin at its origin. And that's not some physical bodily member. It's out of the heart that proceeds fornication, adultery, and theft, and murder. And circumcision was a sign of God's grace that addresses matters of the heart. And in that connection, we have promises of such grace. In uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, for example, where uh, we read here in verse 6, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Circumcise your heart. It's like those prophecies that says, wash you, make yourselves clean. In other words, seek that grace from God of His cleansing and believe His promises because God says, I will wash you. God says, I will circumcise your hearts. Cling to these promises of grace. Yes, circumcision pointed to God's work. It was a work of grace, and it was given to confirm a humble faith in His promises. It was given to give help, to minister to the assurance of people who needed help because they're sinful and they tend to doubt. And God, in His condescending mercy, provides it signs to seal, to give assurance of the reliability of His Word. Yes, it pointed to God's grace of dealing with sin at its root according to His calling, according to His promise. 
according to a spiritual separation from the world that God gives in grace. So that's something of the, the significance of circumcision as a seal of righteousness. Secondly, we want to consider the meaning this had for sons of Abraham. Abraham immediately administered this sign. It's, it's mentioned twice. Uh, so Abraham took Ishmael, his son, all who were born in his house, and all who were born with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day, as God had said to him. Verse 26, that very same day Abraham was circumcised and his son, Ishmael. Abraham probably went last because of it. If he had gone first, it would probably incapacitate him to carry out uh, this rite among all the members of his household because it was not a pleasant operation. It involved removal of foreskin, and uh, it was a bloody operation. And in that connection, his promptness says something about his zeal, doesn't it? It says something about his, his gratitude. It shows something about his eagerness to receive this sign that God had given to him. You know, there's this there's this uh, reference in our, our church order with respect to the baptism of infants. And it says that baptism shall be administered to uh, infants of the congregation as soon as feasible. Now, it doesn't say as soon as possible. It doesn't envision, you know, going to the hospital and baptizing a baby as soon as it's born because this is a congregational sign. It's a sacrament that observed that is observed in the church. And so it doesn't say as soon as possible. Yes, it's possible uh, sometimes for dad to present the baby uh, for baptism while mom is still uh, recovering. In fact, sadly, sometimes that was done at an older time. But I think sometimes we've gone to the other extreme because we got to wait three months for Uncle Harry to come to witness the baptism. And it's it's delayed for this and that trivial reason. And again, I know this is something that people have never considered, and it may sound legalistic and picky to say, no, let's baptize that baby. Well, what's the argument in favor of that? Well, we might put it very simply, whenever we have a command to God, and if we believe that God has commanded that the children of believers should be baptized, well, we ought to be prompt in our obedience. And we ought not to delay it for personal and subjective reasons or look at it in a different way if we believe that God has given this precious gift to us to confirm our faith. Well, what do you do with the gift? You want to open it as soon as you can. You receive it with gratitude. So that's kind of an aside, but uh, it's kind of an explanation for that little phrase in the church order, and that is that baptism is administered uh, because we believe God commands it, and we value this this treasure that he has given for the strengthening and confirmation of the faith of God's people. You know, I would imagine that there was some deep emotion involved in this, uh, this event in the household of Abraham. It was painful, yes, and it was new, and yes, it lacked at this point the weight of generations of practice that, that tend to add to the significance of these, these observations in the church of Jesus Christ. Things that are part of the beauty of uh, the administration of, of baptism and the Lord's Supper in the Church of Christ. Knowing that these things have been so administered 
in the church of Jesus Christ for generation after generation, singing the same kind of songs, reading the same kind of forms, speaking those same words that were spoken over us and our grandparents. Yeah, there's something beautiful and weighty to that. That had not yet developed. But it's not hard to imagine that there was some emotion and deep feeling associated with the administration of this gift that God had given. The wonderful promises of God were fresh. And on those promises, Abraham had been building his whole life and his whole future. And he's assured that that future stretched far beyond him. And he saw it, and he could see it in his son. All the nations of the earth would be blessed in his seed. And he could see those promises signified in the flesh, his son's own flesh, as well as his own. And he was assured that those promises were not just to him, but they were to his offspring. And the seal of that promise was given to his son on his own body, no less than to him. So what did this seal of righteousness then mean? What did it mean for his son? What did it mean for, for Isaac to single him out? Well, we need to begin by remembering that the meaning of sacraments is not defined subjectively by our own feelings. In other words, when baptized children say, my baptism doesn't mean anything to me, that's a statement of unbelief. That's a statement that is relying upon one's own feelings and one's own definitions of things rather than God's. The meaning of baptism is not defined by our memories, by our emotions, by our associations. It begins with what God's Word says and what God's Word teaches about it. It is objective in that sense. It is factual. Circumcision was a sign with significance that was determined by God. God said to Abraham, I make a covenant with you. I say, I am your God. You belong to me. Live in that awareness. Trust entirely upon my promises. Believe my every word. And Abraham did. And it was accounted to him as righteousness. And his children were all given those promises. And along with those promises, all of his children were obligated to believe in those promises and to live accordingly. That was the meaning of circumcision, to signify and seal those promises. That was the meaning for Abraham, and that was the objective meaning that should be received and believed by all his descendants. Of course, this meaning must be taught, right? And it must be believed. You see, it was possible to despise and to devalue the meaning of circumcision. In fact, as it is with baptism in our day, that was quite characteristic of Israel. And so again, that fact is no argument against infant baptism because circumcision also was viewed superstitiously, it was viewed as a, as a sign of superiority. It was treated as if it were a, a, a guarantee of security regardless of one's heart relationship to God. And that, of course, was an abuse and a misuse of, of circumcision. 
It is abused and misused by trusting in it. Remember John the Baptist's words to the, the Jewish people and the religious leaders. He says, do not uh, think to say within yourselves, we are children of Abraham. It's like, you know, you're, you're treating us as if we need to repent. You're, you're treating us as if we're, we're heathen. We're children of Abraham. We're God's people. No, God is able to raise children from these stones. If you boast in your privilege without faith and repentance, that's of no benefit to you. Paul uh, boasted in such things. He describes his own uh, his own privilege that he, as one who might have uh, confidence in the flesh. If anyone uh, else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisees, and on and on, beginning with circumcision. But he also came to understand, as he wrote in Romans chapter 2, that he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and circumcision is that, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, To trust in one's circumcision would be to misuse and abuse its meaning or by failing to seek God's grace and forgiveness and renewal. A failure to plead those promises of God to to circumcise the heart. That again would be a misuse of the sign as it's separated from the reality that it points to or by failing to believe in Christ, to whom circumcision itself pointed. You see, without faith, circumcision testifies against those who don't believe in God's way of righteousness. That's what it would have meant for those many uh, Jewish people who had been circumcised, who had on their own bodies the mark of God's promises of blessing the nations through the seed of Abraham that had the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ but didn't put their trust in him and believe in him. In effect, their unbelief called God a liar, even as they bore the very tokens of God's truth and faithfulness in their own bodies. Such circumcision would testify against those who don't believe what it means and what it points to. Well, then, in in conclusion, some inferences and applications for infant baptism. Inferences. That that, that involves, uh, you might say, good and necessary uh, conclusions or consequences of this teaching. Things that flow out from it. Again, we might ask the question, why were infants given a seal of righteousness by faith, right? In the Old Covenant, that that describes Isaac and infant boys throughout the generations. They were given a seal of righteousness by faith. Are they then supposed to have faith? Or are they supposed by receiving this seal of the righteousness of faith, are they then judged to be at eight days old 
capable of faith? Well, faith comes by hearing, and hearing uh, by the Word of God. So we don't want to separate the subjective benefits and blessings of circumcision or baptism from the exercise of faith, right? But the thing is, with, with children, and even with others, the beginning of faith is not easy to judge, is it? See, that's one of the dilemmas our Baptist brothers and sisters often have. You know, when children are brought up in the faith, when they're nurtured in the gospel, what they so often observe is that these little ones at two or three years old already begin to exhibit a kind of trust in their Heavenly Father and a kind of sorrow for sin. And so, you know, do you kind of artificially come up with a conversion story that fits the, the, the Baptistic narrative? How do you decide when they're baptized? The beginnings of faith are not so easy to discern. And furthermore, the assurance of faith is not so so easy to gain. But God wants covenant children to have help. He wants them to have help from their earliest years. Not only does he want them to be... Uh, instructed in the faith, right? Children are bound to instruct their children in the meaning of their need to be born again, the reality of their sin, right? They need to be taught that. They need to be taught that along with the promises that are signified in their baptism, there are obligations, and that is that they're called and obliged to cling to God, to trust in Him, and to, and to love Him. And they need to be taught those things from their earliest years. And they also need God-given helps to assure their childlike and weak faith in God's uh, fatherly love and grace to them that are not only proclaimed in their ears, but also proclaimed to them the meaning of their baptism. We might say that a problem with infant baptism runs into a problem with circumcision. Because one of the objections that are often raised to infant baptism goes like this. How could it mean anything to them? How could baptism mean anything to uh, a baby that's just a few weeks old? As if this really isn't uh, uh, an inescapable argument that just proves that uh, it's superstitious to, to administer infant baptism to someone who is incapable of understanding it. But do you see, brothers and sisters, that that's not a criticism uh, only of infant baptism, it's a criticism of infant circumcision. Because there's no question that circumcision is defined as a seal of the righteousness of faith. Circumcision had a spiritual significance that the circumcised were obliged to believe and to receive. But how can an eight-year-old little boy do that? Of course, he had to be taught the meaning of his circumcision. But the fact that children have to be taught the meaning of their baptism doesn't mean that it doesn't mean anything to them. Rather, its meaning must be learned. So actually, a bigger problem is, is involved in denying infant baptism. And that problem basically goes like this. The New Testament takes away something very spiritually significant that Old Testament believers were privileged to possess. Right? If you grasp the significance 
of the meaning of circumcision? I mean, how can you read Genesis 17 and dismiss the value of circumcision as a sign of this covenant in which God says, I'll be your God and the God to your children. And I'm going to give you a sign of it. You're going to, you're going to, um, bear it on your own flesh. You're going to be reminded of it constantly. How could anyone dismiss that? Say, oh, that, that has no spiritual value. That's irreverent, isn't it? Oh, say, granted then the spiritual benefits and the importance of circumcision. Then the next question is, are those benefits taken away from new covenant believers? In other words, is the covenant of grace more restrictive in its revelation of the riches of God's way with his people than in the Old Testament? And of course, uh, that's rather unthinkable, isn't it? Because what, what do you have with all those covenant promises? It's like they're, they're given a kind of, uh, um, outward expression and assurance, but the meaning just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Abraham was assured, uh, of his possession of the land of Canaan. But Abraham himself understood that he was heir of the world. And he made sure that when he died, he was buried in that land because he expected to be raised in the possession of his inheritance. And it wasn't just a plot of ground there in Palestine. And so those old covenant promises are expanded in their meaning. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, that it may be well with you and that you may inherit the earth. What is that? That's a New Testament promise to children in Ephesus. It means they're going to live forever and a new heavens and a new earth and its ultimate meaning. So all these promises, all the riches of God's grace, they are progressive. They become enlarged. We come to the New Testament and, uh, and we, we learn that those infant girls were baptized in those household baptisms along with any little boys. And it's very comforting to think that, that water seals the blessing now, which once was sealed with blood because Christ was cut off and he shed the blood that forever uh, removes our sin. And so there's no more bloody rites. And baptism is the sprinkling of clean water that, that points to the one for all, once for all sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the, mean, the meaning is not reduced. The riches are not restricted and limited, but they're enlarged. I hope that helps us to be unapologetic in our love for the riches of God's grace revealed in his covenant promises and signified and sealed in our baptism. I hope it helps us to talk to our Baptist brothers and sisters and try to give some some food for thought, something for them to, to think about in uh, connection with the teaching of Scripture on these things so that we might grow also in the unity of faith together. Amen.